0: Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buker. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. This is On the Ball on the United WeCast Network and I am Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buker. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA and that is here never have the NBA playoffs reminded me more of the NCAA tournament March Madness than this year now the tournament is exciting and fun and enthralling but largely because you can never be sure exactly how a team or a player is going to perform on one particular night against one particular opponent. The reason is usually pretty simple. Players are suddenly faced with pressure situations they've never faced before. Circumstances they've never faced before. How they respond to that pressure, those circumstances, versus how other players respond to that pressure and circumstances, can distort who is actually more talented it also makes it very difficult to re- predict what is going to happen because we don't have any litmus test we don't have any history to work off of these players have never been in this situation before how do we know they're going to react sometimes we take the opponents in previous games in previous situations or things that they've done previously but it's really a false equivalence the comparison is not apt. In any case, we've seen a lot of that, this uncertainty, these mixed results, in these conference finals, which, at this point of the season, when you get to the conference finals, you feel like you have a pretty good bead on who is what and who is capable of what. But that has not been the case. First with the Golden State Warriors and Dallas Mavericks, And again, with the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat. Now, at the risk of telling you something you already know, I feel the need to point out that NBA games are not all alike. In fact, the variety is pretty vast. There are regular season games, and then there are regular season games against rivals and top of the league opponents. Every opponent, good or bad, every team in the league has different tendencies. Different strengths and weaknesses. And some match up perfectly with the team's strengths. So it's not that hard to prepare for. Relatively easy to figure out what it is you need to do. You just need to play to your strengths. Others pose problems because of their personnel or style of play that doesn't fit. And then there's every opposing team having its own unique arc of development, rebuilding, chasing a playoff spot, chasing home court advantage, chasing a championship. And all of these things can vary through the course of the season in terms of what the priority is. Sometimes teams start with one priority and they change to another. So during the regular season, it's hard to prepare for all these variables. There just isn't enough time. That's why generally the teams with the most talent The most depth, the best coaching, and the most consistency, end up winning a lot more games. And I should, I started with talent. Really, not talent at the top of the list. It's who prepares the best, who's the most consistent, who plays the hardest on a night and night in and night out basis. Talent can be overwhelmed by the variables. Now, the reason the playoffs are so interesting is that. There is time to prepare for those variables. And there are more variables than even the regular season. It's why talent surfaces in the postseason, because generally that talent has seen a variety of circumstances. And with the time to prepare, the variables don't get in the way as much. But again, that's not what we're seeing in this postseason for some very good reasons. But in any case, in the postseason, every game, every series has a whole different set of challenges. The advantage of experience, particularly playoff experience, comes with having faced all those variables, or a lot of them, and knowing how to handle them. What to be concerned about, what not to be concerned about. Sometimes it's as simple as that. The Warriors ran into one... In game four against the Dallas Mavericks for these particular Warriors, which is why this idea that the Warriors, because they have Clay, Dre, and Steph back that's Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green that they are the old Warriors or that they're a reiteration of the Warriors pre KD is not accurate. Because even those Warriors had to go through their growing pains, and this particular Warriors team, in spite of having those veterans, is going through those those same growing pains because game four against the Dallas Mavericks a closeout game on the road was the third time they've had an opportunity to close out a series on the road and they have yet not only not to win it but even to perform well in that particular game that they have yet to face an opponent who could make them pay for that has been the difference But then that's to be expected if you look at the opponents. The Denver Nuggets, the ones that the Warriors faced, are far from a playoff-tested team. Same goes for both the Memphis Grizzlies and these Dallas Mavericks. That won't be the case against either the Celtics or the Heat. Now, For most of this series, the Mavericks' playoff inexperience was painfully apparent. It arguably was the biggest reason the Warriors entered Game 4 up 3-0 in the series. It even showed up in Game 4 in the fourth quarter, giving the Warriors a glimmer of hope that they might still pull out a win and a sweep. Now, Warriors coach Steve Kerr clearly thought his team was exactly where they needed to be after playing the Mavs essentially even in the first quarter. He's been a, through enough closeout games. He's been enough th- uh, through enough playoff series. He understands the, the psychology that goes on in these series. He knew that a big key to winning a closeout game against a team on the road is withstanding that first rush of a desperate opponent being cheered on by their home crowd. Because when they played them even, he felt very good. He even, believe I said, told uh, Ali LaForce as much. Felt good where they were. I believe they trialed by a point or two at the time. And there was proof that he felt good because he spent the second quarter essentially resting his main horses for a second half push as if most of the work had already been done. They hadn't let the game get away from them in the first quarter. And whatever happened in the second quarter, his confidence was it's not going to be enough to take us out of the uh, out of the running, beyond the realm of being able to make a a second half comeback even if that's what was required so he rested his main horses his starters the 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 bulk of his starters in the second quarter and he told us just how little he thought of the Mavs and their chances by starting the second quarter with rookies Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody Kevon Looney Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole and then leaving them out there even as Dallas built an 11-point lead. It was borderline disrespectful, or at the very least, somewhat arrogant. But I'm sure he was thinking, a double-digit lead is hardly anything to sweat, as long as we have a fresh Steph Curry, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green down the stretch. I was thinking the same thing. The Mavs seemed content with that margin, in the second quarter, pushing it to 16 a couple of times, but either getting lazy with their offensive execution or giving up easy, quick baskets at the other end. And Luka Doncic was one of the biggest culprits, holding the ball too long or settling for deep threes, missing both. End of the first quarter, he gets trapped on the sideline, holds it too long, it ends up being a backcourt violation. It was an opportunity for, at, at the very least, a quality shot. There was time for that, and he frittered it away. There was more of that throughout the game, honestly, but especially in the second quarter. He ended up taking a total of 11 threes and making only three of them, and more than half were deep threes. More than once, he also missed a shot, dropped his head in disappointment, and jogged back on defense as the Warriors as a team ran by him. It was a bad look for a player as highly regarded and as vitally important to the Mavs as Luka is. I was talking to my TV at this point, yelling that the Mavs needed to push it past 20, make the lead big enough that the Warriors would have to press to cut into it. It's not that I have a rooting interest in the series, but I simply don't like to watch teams beat themselves with poor decision-making and... I like seeing as many games as possible. I learn something about every player, every team, every coach with the more material we have. More games equals more material. And whoever wins, I want to feel like they outperformed the other team rather than simply stood back and let the opponent trip up and do a self-inflicted faceplant, which essentially is what the Mavs did in Game 2. But the Mavericks clearly learned a lesson from that game when they led by 19 at one point in the second quarter and were up by 14 at the half. In game two, they came out in the third quarter and played as if all they wanted was to keep the lead, not expand it. And by the end of the third quarter, it was gone, and the, the lead that is, and the game was essentially over. I've seen people talk about Steph Curry having a phenomenal fourth quarter Uh, and closing it out and proof that he's still the same old Steph Curry the game was won in the third quarter if you were watching you saw that you saw the body language of the Mavs leading the game leading by double digits for most of the game and then finding themselves going into the fourth quarter down one and the worst part Steph Curry was a non-factor in the third quarter when the Warriors closed the gap Steph had two points and two assists, missing all five of his shots from the floor. So it was, wow, we blew our lead, and Steph Curry hasn't even been activated yet. Kevon Looney was the one who was doing the damage. As one worry after another drove into the paint, drew a second defender, sort of, and dumped it off to Looney for an easy bucket. The second defender wasn't doing enough to challenge or shut that drive down he was simply coming up and stepping up and the drop-off passes were easy and no one was rotating back either to challenge the drop-off or to box out for the misses because looney simply went up and grabbed offensive rebounds three of them for putbacks and a total of 11 points the mavericks not only were giving up penetration but their guards were getting beat and not trying to get back into the play the Mavs, meanwhile, at the other end, kept walking it up, kept hoisting threes, and unlike the first half when every other one was finding the net, these were missing. 11 of 13 in all. They appeared stunned that they weren't going in, and that momentary shock resulted in runoffs, runouts off the misses for easy buckets at the other end for the Warriors. So, it was compounded. The Mavs' lack of offense was compounding their lack of effort on defense, something that Jason Kidd pointed out after the game. And I'm always curious. I heard a lot of it in the postseason. Players were asked about that fact, that Jason Kidd was saying our defense was affected by our offense. And players were asked, what do you think about that? And it puts them in a very awkward situation. They have to either agree and cop to it, Or they have to disagree with their head coach. In either case, I'm not sure what the point is. What Jason Kidd said was evident. I don't need a player co-signing it. But I digress. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. the Mavs appeared to get the message I was sending through my TV in the second quarter of game four. They kept pushing the pace as they did from the very beginning, including with Luka. Another one of the question marks is Luka plays slow. Luka plays like LeBron James plays now. He's always, because he's going to get the ball. And Shaq used to do this just as an aside. Shaquille O'Neal, back in the day, grab the offensive rebound, uh, defensive rebound, excuse me, and then look for the outlet. And the outlet would often be there. And Shaq would sometimes double clutch it because he knew that if they didn't get a bucket on the break, they were then going to hold the ball and wait for him to get down the court to post up and get him the ball. So there is trickery involved. Sometimes guys don't want to go on the break because they want to score or they want the offense to flow through them and they know if they pass it ahead they've either got to bust it to become part of the play or somebody else is going to be scoring and operating and depending on who you are that may not always be palatable in any case Mavs kept pushing the pace stayed in attack mode in game four in the third quarter now, it also helped that the threes continued to fall this time. But the early aggression led to better looks on the kickouts and ample opportunities at the rim. There was a nice balance. It wasn't all threes. They scored inside the arc six times and at least three times at the rim. More important, their defense stayed on point, limiting the Warriors to 40% shooting, and the lead grew to 28 Now, they would need all of that in the fourth quarter, as I expected they would. And now I was yelling at Doncic, who I thought, as I said, did not play one of his smarter games, even though he wound up one assist short of a triple-double. Again, exhibit 9,462 that reading a box score or reading statistics does not actually tell you how a player played. Seven of his nine assists came in the first three quarters. In the final period, he didn't seem to recognize that his teammates were rolling and was far too slow in giving up the ball and allowing it to move and find the open shooter. So yes, Doncic was instrumental in building that big lead. Was playing, for the most part, not great, but pretty damn good. And... He was a reason, or at least a contributing factor as to why they built that lead. But then when you operate in a way that causes it to shrivel, that has to be acknowledged too. The only one who was worse was Spencer Dinwiddie, and he had me yelling at the TV too. He has an incredible knack, and I don't, for whatever reason, I don't know whether he's playing a, a more amplified role, or I just didn't pay attention before, or he hasn't done this as much before, but... He has an incredible knack, or has had, with the Mavs in this series of killing created advantages by being so damn indecisive. Double clutching the ball, starting drives, and then changing his mind, jab-stepping and holding the ball while the defense recovers, and then pitching it to somebody else and expecting them to fix the problem. Now, to look at the box score for Game 4, you'd think he had a solid game. Eight assists, 10 points. But anybody who watched the game, again, had to see he was a big reason the Warriors closed the gap and threw a scare in the Mavs in the fourth quarter. He missed his only shot, and he posted a minus 12 for the period. Now, Jalen Brunson was just as bad, and actually statistically worse, with a minus 18. But I'm going to blame some of his struggle on Dinwiddie because he was the recipient <laughs> When Dinwiddie would blow whatever advantage or crease that was created and Dinwiddie would hold the ball or jab step or hesitate and allow the defense to fully recover. And then he would swing the ball to Jalen Brunson in the corner with a short shot clock against a reset defense. And Brunson tried to make something out of it, but he was up against it. It was all maddening to watch. End result, the Mavs offense stagnated despite Kerr putting his C-team out there with Nemanja Bjelica and Damian Lee joining Poole, Kaminga, and Moody for most of the period. Bjelica played all 12 minutes of the fourth quarter. The same Bjelica who did not play at all in games two and three and played a grand total of five minutes in game one. I attended game two of the Warriors and Mavericks, which is why it plays such a big part in this episode and my comparisons to Game 4. Because I was struck in watching the first half, the matchups. First of all, the matchups were just, they were so odd. And they've continued on this series, they really haven't changed. Jalen Brunson, who is an undersized and largely unheralded backup point guard, at least before this season, has been matched up with Draymond Green, an all-star power forward and occasional center. Andrew Wiggins an all-star wing player, has been matched up with Luka Doncic, a point forward. Now, both of those, Wiggins and Doncic, are listed at the same height, 6'7", but Doncic has a 30-pound weight advantage. Then there's Reggie Bullock, a 6'6", small forward, who is matched up with point guard Steph Curry. And there's not a whole lot of cross-matching going on in this series. They're odd matchups, but the teams have decided to stay with them. At both ends of the floor. Now, there was a point in the first half in game two, which Dallas dominated, that I looked at the floor and who was guarding who and thought, damn, the Mavericks have some advantages here. Kavan Looney and Draymond Green are on the floor together. That's going to be a problem as far as spacing on offense and defending the three at the other end, which it was. The Mavericks went 15 for 27. On threes in the first half of Game Two, and it those they were wide open. They were wide open in, in the third quarter too, when they went two for thirteen. I still believe it can be a huge factor in this series. The Dallas Mavericks simply haven't been able to exploit it. We will see. I don't. That's again, that's why I don't believe that the Miami Heat pose the same challenge to the Warriors as the Celtics do i believe being able to shoot the 3 and shoot it well can be can you can exploit the warriors if you're capable of doing that so all of this is why i'm a long way from sold that this warriors iteration is anything close to the pre kd warriors teams that those teams that team hung its hat on a stifling defense first and foremost the lineup of death was so named not just because they could blitz teams with a potent offense. And by the way, they could blitz teams with a potent offense, a a type of offense that had not been seen before with Draymond Green, a small power forward leading the break, being your big. Everybody has adopted that now. But it wasn't just the offense. It was combined with the ability to absolutely suffocate teams when necessary. And I haven't seen that consistently in this series at all. And there are a few reasons why I would not expect to see it. Starting with Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole, for all of his scoring, is is not good on defense. I'll be kind. Not good. I want to say clueless, but I think he knows what he's supposed to do. He just seems to be unable to do it. Now, I was struck, and then you can go down the line. Um, Clay is not the same defender he once was. Draymond Green is not the same defender he once was. Steph has never been that kind of defender. He's actually, in some ways, he hasn't fallen off. He just is what he's been. He used to be the weak link. Now he's noticeable because uh, he's not. In any case, I was struck in Game 4 by what a non-factor the Warriors' Big 3 were. Draymond, Steph, and Clay, despite shooting the ball well. I think that's important to note. Now, I want to say that Steph was 7 for 16, so it wasn't like he was lights out. Um, But closeout games are usually when Green takes over, in particular, and that wasn't the case last night. He finished with a minus 18, despite scoring 10 points. However, 8 of them were in the first half. Both he and Clay shot 50%, and yet Clay posted a minus 22. Now, I thought Steve Kerr gave away a psychological edge going into game five by bringing his starters back in the final minutes after a couple of threes by Moody cut the Mavericks' lead to single digits for the first time, eight points. Jason Kidd brought his starters back as well, and they closed out the win. He actually brought Luka back. About midway through the fourth quarter when he saw the lead start to dwindle. And then he had everybody back by the, by the end. But if Kerr doesn't bring out his starters, his starters back that is, and the Warriors close, however they close, if they win, series is over. And they did it with their C team. Man, what a boost to your C team, to your supporting cast that they were able and allowed to uh, have such a huge impact on the team. And if they don't, well, then you go into game five with the Mavs thinking, man, we nearly lost this game with the Warriors C unit out there. They put pressure on us. What's going to happen if they bring the A team back? That's the psychological advantage or edge that I thought that Steve Kerr gave away by bringing his starters back. Jason Kidd, obviously, brought his back and they closed out the win. And without that turn of events, the Warriors could have gone into Game 5 feeling as if they held something back. Instead, the Mavs can show up at the Chase Center believing that their starting unit is fully capable of outplaying the Warriors best when it matters most. Now, I don't know if that's true, but now they have the ability to think that. And I don't know that it will make a difference because I don't see the Mavs doubling up the Warriors and threes made 20-10 to 10 on the Warriors' home floor. But it leaves the door of confidence cracked. This game illustrated, once again, by the way, why we've seen so many lopsided, lopsided games throughout these playoffs. Teams are living and dying by the three more than they ever have. Ten years ago... Playoff teams averaged 17 threes a game. Going into last night's game, this year's playoff teams are averaging 34. Whoever shoots the three exceptionally well is winning in a landslide because the opponent has tried to answer in kind and has failed miserably. I found exactly one exception to this, and it's when the Celtics beat the Heat by 20 in game four and shot 23% on threes. The, The Heat actually shot better from three than the Celtics. But it's why I have so much confidence that, Celtic, that the Celtics are the superior team in that series. They can shoot the three well, 37% overall in the playoffs, roughly 1% worse than the Warriors, but they don't have to shoot it well to win. It's why their net rating, the combination of their defense and offense, is the best among the four remaining teams. They've obviously had their lapses as well, which brings me back to my original point. These are the least buttoned-up four teams in recent memory, making it this far in the postseason. None have played with any sort of consistency. Miami Heat, probably the closest. They've also played with the variants that we're used to seeing in March Madness. Now there, it's a result of playing one-offs against often unfamiliar opponents in unfamiliar arenas with unfamiliar officials. Here, I can't help but believe it's a function of fluctuating rotations thanks to injuries and fatigue in a league where teams rarely practice once the season starts. But that's what we have as of right now. Instead of March Madness, we have May Madness. And while I believe. We will be seeing the Warriors and the Celtics in the finals. How we get there and what happens when we get there is still very much up in the air. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And in the next episode, I am planning... There's two two items of business that i have in mind one we have game five heat and celtics obviously huge pivotal game and however it goes i'm either going to be proved right about who the celtics are or i'm going to be proved wrong about the heat so i'm inclined to do the next episode all about game five and what we should take from it what we've learned going forward But I also want to talk about why we are so divided as a country as a result of the shooting in Texas and that not just with that and our fractured view of how we solve our common problems, but how it's infiltrated the way we look at sports and why. I want to get to all of that in an upcoming episode as well, but we will tackle game five First. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip?